Welcome to Sister Scriptorians, where we are devoted to learning, likening, and lifting others one principle at a time. Episode 43, I Will Not Forget Thee. All right. It's been a week. It's been a week since you said your initial how do you do's to Isaiah. It's the beginning of a new relationship with him. There's no history of mental blocks in this relationship. There's no history of you avoiding him. Instead, you are developing a relationship with him in which you have a desire to hear what he has to say. And you have a heart that is open to whatever the spirit directs you to understand at this moment. And I know that there are books out there that teach you how to understand Isaiah, and I hear that they are fabulous, and I need to take time to either check one out from the library or borrow one or maybe even buy a really good one, and I need to take time to read them because I love history and I believe in context. But my intent at this point in time is to develop warm feelings towards Isaiah and to learn how to read him with the Spirit so that the Spirit can communicate to me and help build my confidence when I'm reading His words. And I will try and tell you when I am making a guess or an assumption, because I don't want to present myself as an Isaiah expert. But I am trying to take seriously the counsel of the Savior. When he visited the Nephites, he instructed them to search the words of Isaiah. He commanded them to do it diligently. And he validated that Isaiah spake as touching all things concerning the Lord's people. And if that is the case, who do you think would not want you to love Isaiah? And also working against us is the natural man, specifically our brain. (laughs) The brain of the natural man that clouds over and gets fuzzy and even lethargic when we're asked to try and comprehend Isaiah's words. It complains that it's too hard to understand and then we just start to glass over. But sister scriptorians, know that this is a relationship worth forming. And so through the help of the Spirit, We can even overcome the weaknesses of the natural man and gain understanding. And we do have some helps. Remember that Isaiah is written in poetic form using metaphors and also changing the speaker frequently. Therefore, pay attention to the punctuation. And you can even get really serious about this and even outline the chapters of Isaiah, making a note as to who is speaking and separating out the different principles that you're finding. And I guarantee you, I promise you, I shouldn't say guarantee, it sounds like a salesman. I I promise you that when you do take the time to outline and separate this out, After having a prayer and really trying to do this with the Spirit, you will receive insight into Isaiah and things will pop out at you. You might not understand all of it. I don't think I understand all of it, but you're going to understand enough of it where you're going to value it and you're going to feel motivated and feel empowered by it. Also, another suggestion is to not only use the Institute's Book of Mormon study guide, but to also use the Old Testament study guide. 
And on the BYU TV app, you can search different programs that have been produced by BYU. And there is an Insights into Isaiah, which is like a panel discussion of BYU professors, which that's pretty cool. For free, you can listen to them talk about Isaiah and give a little bit of context to the chapters. They don't go into every nitty gritty detail, but they do give you an overall feeling about what's being talked about. But most importantly, I encourage you to devote time to this relationship. Take a week to read and reread just one Isaiah chapter. Take time to read the footnotes and to look up the suggested scriptures. By doing so, you're going to see familiar language used throughout the scriptures that sprinkle some clarity as to Isaiah's intent and as to who he's referring to and what he's meaning. And once we finish today, I think you're going to see why Nephi desired to have his people love Isaiah's words. It is the hope that everything is going to eventually work out and the Lord will not forget them. That is what is contained in Isaiah, especially this chapter. He knows how this is all going to go down. So let's begin. We're in 1 Nephi chapter 21, which is Isaiah 49 in the Old Testament. And the Lord begins speaking, and he's speaking to the house of Israel, specifically those who have been broken off. And the Lord even tells us how the house of Israel even got to this point. And it's because of the wickedness of their pastors. Now, according to the study manuals, right here in the first verse, the speaker changes from the Lord to the house of Israel who testifies that the Lord has called me from the womb, testifying of the characteristics of God to know the end from the beginning and that he is omniscient and that he had a relationship with us before we even had breath. And also that from the beginning, there was a plan in place that those of the house of Israel have had a purpose even from the womb. So when we feel that things are left to chance, that there is no purpose in us or for us, just this scripture alone can clarify our identity and also clarify the identity of whose voice it is that is giving you those thoughts. And spoiler alert, it is not the Lord's. He has a plan for you. Remember, you are of the house of Israel, whether by birth or by adoption, through the covenants that you have made. And so therefore, Isaiah is speaking to you, except that he does vacillate between time periods. But all of the promises, they belong to you. So take heed of his warnings and point yourself in the direction that he's trying to persuade you to follow. Going on, Israel also testifies that the Lord made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hit me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. Can you hear? Can you hear how precious and intentional our Lord is with his people? Protective even. To make our mouth like a sharp sword is a protective offensive strategy. The word of God gives us the power to slice through deception and the counterfeit teachings of the world. It gives us the ability to slice through darkness and to let the light in. And what does it mean in the shadow of his hand hath he hid me? 
I'm not sure in context to ancient Israel, but in the latter days, I can see this as a reference made regarding the promised land or America. This land had miraculously been preserved, hidden from the rest of the earth's inhabitants for so long. And it gave space for the Lord to bring select people unto it, specifically the Jaredites and the Lehites, though I'm sure or don't doubt that there were others. And it provided them a land to grow in strength and numbers and to continue to make covenants with God. In the shadow of his hand, the people were hid from a time, allowing God to have a people that he could continue to keep his promises to and lift up by teaching them how to obtain immortality and eternal life, his work, his glory. Now a shaft is a body of an arrow, and it must be polished in order for the arrow to be of any use and not more of a hazard. (laughs) Because it helps the arrow slice through the air and have precise aim. Therefore, it must be polished to remove all the roughness and the imbalance on the shaft. This work requires patience. I imagine perseverance. And I imagine a sensitivity and attention to detail by the individual who is polishing it. And without this care, without the work that goes into doing so, the arrow would miss the mark and it would deviate off course. And doesn't that give special meaning to our relationship with the Lord? Don't you think? He is making us into a polished shaft. And this requires us to undergo a change. But it's so that we can hit the mark. And finally, in his quiver hath he hid me, refers to the device that holds those arrows. In war, the special, well-polished arrows were used to hit the most important shots, to make a purposeful impact on the battle, to perhaps even change the tide of the battle. The footnote scriptures link this verse as pertaining to Joseph Smith, and, and yes, he fits all of these metaphors. But I do believe that these can be very personal messages from the Lord to each one of his children who are committed to his work and glory, that it is evidence that he is preparing us. For the Lord said, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. We are his servants. What an honor. But lest you don't see it favorably, listen to this scripture found in D&C, Section 93, verses 45 through 46. I love them. Verily I say unto my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., or in other words, I will call you friends. For you are my friends, and ye shall have an inheritance with me. I called you servants for the world's sake, and ye are their servants for my sake. How absolutely endearing. I want in on this intimate relationship with my Savior to be his friend and I will be his servant for his sake and the world's sake. And we'll get into what that means in a few minutes. But take with you that added insight into who our Lord is when we combine those two verses. This is not a Lord that desires to dominate And therefore, we are his servants. This is a Lord that desires a relationship and a partnership with us. 
that we are his friends, that we will be his servants to gather his children so that he can accomplish his work and his glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of men. Being his servant is a privilege. He has given us an awesome task. But it can be tiring at times. In verse 4, Israel says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. I wonder if Nephi sometimes felt this way. Really, any of the Nephites found in the Book of Mormon. Did they feel that their labor was in vain? That their strength was wasted? What about Abinadi or Alma or Mormon? I've seen missionaries come home after two years and not a single baptism and how it would leave you with feelings that are similar to this verse. But the Lord is hope and he promises his servants that they will be made glorious in the eyes of the Lord and that he shall be their strength. No wasted or vain efforts, my friends, when it comes to the work of salvation. Now, verse six, I'm making an assumption The Lord says, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. To me, this verse says that our task isn't a heavy burden, but it is a light thing. That tells me it is a privilege to be engaged in this work. It sounds daunting, but we are helping to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore and preserve them. And that, sister scriptorians, is an exciting honor. The Lord goes on to say that he will give us for a light to the Gentiles. You'll be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. The upholder of all things is going to prepare us. And he's going to bridge the gap and add upon us to make us capable for such a task. And he says, this is a light thing. Again, this may apply specifically to Joseph Smith, but I see the truth of this in our youth when they stand up. I see it in our missionaries, in our bishops, in our prophets, in all those who accept the role of the Lord's servants. And to all, the Lord reminds in Isaiah that he is faithful and that he has heard his children in acceptable time. He has helped us, he has preserved us, and that he gives his servant for a covenant of the people to establish the earth. Again, the rock of salvation began to roll with Joseph Smith, but it has never stopped. And the Lord continues to be faithful in responding in appropriate time. We might disagree with his timing, but he who knows all things says it is appropriate timing. And he's helping us and he's preserving us and he's sending his servants to gather his children. And this is to be our message. To the prisoners, the message is, go forth. To those that sit in darkness, the message is, show yourself. The gospel of Jesus Christ releases us from the prisons and the darkness of the adversary. And the Lord He desires to nourish us by feeding us in the ways and our pastures shall be in all the high places. That is the abundant goodness of our God. He will nourish us along the path back to him. He's going to get us up into high ground. And he has the power to even make high ground where normally not a lot of vegetation grows. But he has the ability to make it plentiful for us so that we don't hunger or thirst 
or experience the harsh sun. He'll keep us safe from all of it because of his mercy. And he'll keep doing all of this while he leads us along. Basically, we just need to trust and to follow and to let go of our defense mechanisms. And he will show us that he's got our back. In verse 12, the Lord gives counsel that his children will come from far, from the north and from the west, and we are to gather them. This work is cause for singing and joy. He tells us, be joyful. This work will comfort his people and he will have mercy upon the afflicted. And in verse 14, the voice changes again, and it is now Zion. And Zion feels she has been forsaken, and she's been forgotten by the Lord. And I want to pause, and I want to get real for a minute. I don't think that you would be off the mark if, as I have been telling you about all the good news which you have been called to participate in, and all the strengthening and the polishing and the mercy and the sparing his children from affliction that the Lord promises us, I wouldn't find it peculiar if you then looked at your life and you felt a little bit of dissonance. You feel that your experiences aren't necessarily matching up to the promises that are sprinkled throughout the scriptures, particularly in this chapter. And my response to you is, I get it. I get the literal pain of a broken heart, a heart who is trying her very best, and yet righteous desires seem to stay just out of reach. And I get the heart who is seeking personal revelation, and it feels that the Lord is being elusive instead of close. And I get how painful the middle of the story is and how long it feels how many chapters it seems to take up. But recognize your story isn't done and that the polishing of this shaft, you, the arrow, the arrow that's being made so that it can't or won't deviate off course, that has the potential of hitting that important target and changing the course of the battle, that this polishing requires much. There is rubbing and scraping and particles being stripped off in the process. And I imagine if the wood of the arrow had feelings, it would describe it as painful. The friction would be hot and searing to its soul. And when I put it into those terms, it makes it a very beautiful metaphor that Isaiah used. Very real, very personal. Don't give up though. Please trust and keep going. These promises and the spirit of these verses are just, they're just too precious for you to miss out on. So hold on and don't leave us. Isaiah captures the response of the Lord that even though you may feel that you have been forgotten, the Lord tells you that he will show you that he hasn't forgotten you. Showing is so much better than telling That's what I say to my kids. And that is what he will do for you. He says he'll show you. He asks, can a woman forget her second child? That she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? And those of you who are mothers know you can't. That your body reminds you. That your senses remind you. That your maternal nurturing instincts remind you of that child in need of nourishment. 
never mind the child itself (laughs) that will cry or nudge you. But there are some, believe it or not, for whatever reasons, they do forget. And the Lord makes a point to tell us that this isn't his nature. They may forget, yet will I not forget thee, O house of Israel. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Isn't that beautiful and literally true? He can't forget our needs. He can't forget our sufferings. Our sufferings, not only did he suffer for, but it left marks upon his palms. We are impressions permanently upon his body, continually. He promises that thy children shall make haste against thy destroyers, and they that made thee waste shall go forth of thee. Basically, he's saying, hang in there. It's going to work out. Then the Lord gives some pretty exciting details to the gathering of Israel. And I offer this perspective that it makes sense. It makes sense what we know about opposition in all things. That in the latter days, the assigned time for the great work of the Lord to take place. That we would see great degrees of discouragement and distraction, temptation and wickedness. And that in order to participate in these miraculous events, we will need to develop sufficient faith and learn how to hold on to it while waging through the junk of the world. For the Lord says that those that are gathering, those accepting the gospel are going to come to you. And he says, as I live, Thou shalt surely clothe thee with them all, as with an ornament, and bind them on even as a bride. And I don't know exactly what that means. But what came to my mind as I studied it this week is that he will add upon our efforts as his servants. And that we will, through our efforts of embracing righteousness, be able to clothe the gathered in these robes as well. For them to make covenants as a bride does to her bridegroom, even the bridegroom of Jesus Christ. Verse 19 goes on to say that there are going to be so many who will gather that we will need to find a place for them to dwell. We will wonder where have all these people been? And we've seen this, or at least the beginnings of this. We saw this in the growing pains of the early church. And we see this now as we are expanding our vision and becoming a worldwide church. And here, where I live along the Wasatch Front in Utah, major growth has been occurring in the last 10 years at least. And this trend is predicted to continue. And many are being brought into the state where the church is strong. And perhaps intentionally so, to give them the opportunity for us to gather them. In verses 22, the Lord promises that he will lift up his hand to the Gentiles and set up his standard or the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we have the beautiful description from the Lord that the Gentiles will bring the sons of the house of Israel in their arms and their daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders that kings shall be their nursing fathers and queens their nursing mothers. And it is my assumption 
that we aren't talking about the kings and queens of this earth. But with the context that has come before it, my mind brings me to the conclusion that these are kings and queens of the covenant, and that in keeping their covenant, they will be the servants of the Lord for the earth's sake. And this imagery shows me the true nurturing that the gospel brings into our lives that I think sometimes we don't appreciate. But that becomes so obvious to those who have been without the gospel. It rescues the downtrodden and it lifts them up. It nourishes the starving with the bread of life. It carries the weary and gives rest to the restless. And the older that I get and the more I observe the workings of the church, I am led to believe that there are no coincidences that happen. The Spirit of God is directing His church. Even the Light the World initiative that's been around for, I think, three years, and it's directing members of the church to look beyond themselves, beyond their immediate spheres of influence, and to stretch their vision along with their compassion, to stretch their knowledge and their understanding to those who are around the world, to the four quarters of the earth, to serve and to love, to give and to even sacrifice for. And the Lord expands our vision in verse 23, that those who are gathered shall bow down to thee with their face towards the earth and lick up the dust off thy feet. For those that wait for the coming of the Lord won't be ashamed. And this is not read to be prideful or to feel elevated above our fellow men, but to be read in humility and reverence. And I believe we see this manifested in the experiences of our elder and our sister missionaries of the church. Their love for the people becomes uncontainable. And the people who have embraced the Lord's teachings love and reverence these young people who have brought the joy of Jesus Christ into their lives. These missionaries have made eternal families by placing their feet literally upon the path back to their God. And during this time of unfolding of truth and gathering of God's children, he will empower his people so that their enemies will no longer have power over them. The prey will be delivered. He will contend with them that contendeth with us. He will save our children. Wow. This chapter of Isaiah contains our marching orders from our ever vigilant captain. I love Isaiah and the good news and the empowerment that he brings to what it means to be a covenant keeper of God. I feel emboldened to open my mouth and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you? Sister Scriptorians, the Lord has not forgotten you. How could he? You are graven upon the palms of his hands. Instead, he calls you to be his servant and to help gather his children who may feel that they have been forgotten and forsaken. They aren't. And with your help, he will gather them. Will you carry them in your arms? Will you be their nursing mothers? Sing and be joyful. These are the latter days. Have a good day.